everybody, and welcome to the latest podcast of AAPC's The Pulse. Um, thank you all for joining us once again. My name is Lori Cox, and I am your host today. I have my good friend with me. I'm sure if you've been around AAPC at all, any of the conferences or reading the magazines, you're familiar with Michael Misko. So welcome, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Lori. Um, why don't you give us a little bit of background for those of you who may not ever have heard your name, although I highly doubt that that's happened, but <laughs> you better tell well, them a little bit about yourself just in case. I, I won't tell you the year, but I started out in coding a very, very long time ago. Typing back then, they were called HICFA 1500. <laughs> that's right. aware what a typewriter is. It was kind of like a keyboard, but it was hooked to this thing and it had these metal gizmos and you pushed the letter and it went whack on the thing on the paper and there was like ink. Um, so that was my introduction into billing in high school. And then uh, after going and playing around in the army and doing fun stuff like that, I got into software development and that led me into uh, uh, developed a part B medical billing program. And that got me into billing, which then led to coding, which then led to doing coding expert work. And I was challenged once uh, uh, for not having any formal education in coding or certification. And that was at a time when the certification for coding was not well known as a right. profession. And uh, so I got mad and I got on my <laughs> modem. You know, those were <laughs> little boxes that dialed on a phone line and got you on the internet and uh, searched coding certifications, found AAPC, joined in uh, 2001, uh, took my exam. That was back when you had to drive like a, I had to drive to Buffalo, which is six hours away to take my exam because we oh, had wow. chapters back then. And, um, yeah. And I remember thinking, it's an open book test. How hard could it be? <laughs> and much to my surprise, it was horrifying. I don't even remember the trip back. I called back to the office and told my wife, I said, you need, you need to make me plane reservations for Chicago in two months because I know I failed this test. So I, I, I became, but I did pass. Uh, I be, I'm a CPC by one point. Uh, I took it when you had to pass all three sections and the yep, section me that, too. like irrelevant stuff like, um, you know, surgery, path lab, <laughs> right? Know, irrelevant things like that that <laughs> you really don't need to know. I passed that section by one point. So um, anyway, um, that started my journey. That was back in 2001 and I've managed to accumulate a few other certifications mm -hmm. and Along the way, went to law school, and uh, my uh, expert business and my law practice are both focused on uh, post-payment audit defense. And mm -hmm. in my expert realm, I, I do do I also do work for uh, payers, fraud analysis. So um, I try to I've done some work for uh, Department of Justice and uh, been an IRO and done pretty much. Uh, most anything you can do in a post-payment audit world, but uh, I do enjoy it. It, it represents a, an intellectual challenge, and mm -hmm. uh, although it does get, uh, you know, once you've audited your millionth chart, um, sometimes it can get a little taxing. Uh -huh. Yeah, I know the feeling <laughs> about that. Uh, I think I, I'm like on my 10th chart of the day, and I'm thinking, didn't I already do this one? <laughs> well, they start all sounding the same. 
Well, they do. But your background is the reason why I brought you in today, because uh, we we do a lot of audits here at AAPC as well. And uh, we get a lot of questions from clients and we kind of stumble over sometimes. So I wanted to bring you in and kind of pick your brain a little bit. Um when we do an audit, okay, so the maybe the audit shows that the practice is severely undercoding, there or overcoding. Let's say overcoding because that's generally uh, a little bit more serious than undercoding. But let, let's say there's definitely issues with their ENM levels, and so then they come back and they're going to say, okay, so now do we have to correct all of these claims and send them? back for corrected payment or what are, what are their next steps? And that's where we kind of stumble. Well, you know, what is the right way? All right. Well, let's, let's break it down. Um, most practices have, um, you know, f- federal healthcare program dollar claims and non-federal healthcare program dollar claims. Right. So your Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, VA community care, uh, federal workers comp, you know, which goes through the blues, you mm-hmm. know, federal employee health benefits. I'm sorry, I meant I didn't mean federal workers comp, but uh, uh, that's another one. But um, mm-hmm. federal employee health benefits uh, plans uh, that go through the blues, all of those are federal health care program dollar claims. And for those, if you have a reason to suspect that there are claims that were paid incorrectly, then that triggers an obligation to do an investigation. So you've done some some form of an audit, whether it's mm-hmm. a, a sampling or something of that, maybe it's statistical, non-statistical, um, but to the extent that it identifies a problem with federal health care program claims, then that is going to trigger a broader investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, so your look back under the voluntary refund and disclosure rule, which is a component of the False Claims Act, is six years. Um, so what you have to do is identify if you can isolate to a provider uh, to a particular, maybe it's an ENM related to a certain diagnosis, but you want to uh, refine the scope of where the potential error is as, as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, understanding that when you, if you're going back before 2021, it gets a little messier because mm-hmm. um, the while we all have our audit tools, those weren't actually part of either CPT or OIG guide or CMS guidance back at the time. So it becomes equivocal as to whether those scoring tools, uh, even though they were an industry standard, they're not binding. So right. when you get into ENM and you're prior to the 2021 change, um, it, it, I become a little more iffy on the disclosure and refund obligation relative to ENMs because the actual published criteria. Uh, so if you were to look at the Medicare claims processing manual, uh, which is pub 100-4, um, and I think it's chapter 12, section 30.6.1, where it talks about selecting the level of ENM service. Mm-hmm. I dare you to follow that guidance and figure it out. You can't. <laughs> right. right. Um, you know, to the extent that the, the program integrity manual incorporates CPT, you know, even the CPT guidance then was, uh, unhelpful is the politest way I can say it mm-hmm. uh, to figuring out the level of E&M. It's not until, you know, we roll in the 95, 97 guidelines, which neither CMS or CPT referenced. And then the scoring tools for medical decision-making, you get close. And even then you can recall, I mean, we do lecture, advanced lectures on E&Ms and we still fight about 
whether it's this level or that mm-hmm. level or how do we score this or how do you, Absolutely. When you give the, you know, additional, uh, uh, you know, uh, new problem examiner additional workup. When do you give the right. additional workup point? And, you know, so those debates raged on for 20 years with yes. no guidance whatsoever. So once you're before 2021, you're into a different set of rules related to the level of E&M, in which case this, an audit of current services wouldn't necessarily tell you anything about that. Mm-hmm. So with E&Ms, you can probably firewall your disclosure liability January, 20, uh, January 1st, 2021. But under the new rules, I think those are a lot more objective. Um, and, you know, to the extent that you see, uh, you know, some clear error, uh, in, in the levels, then that would trigger an obligation to go out and do an investigation over mm-hmm. all your federal healthcare program dollar claims. And the question is, how do you do it? Mm-hmm. Um, so your options are 100% audit, you know, which may be doable if you can isolate, maybe it's just one particular provider. Maybe it's one particular provider or a group of providers relative to a particular condition that's somewhat that they messed up on. But if it's broad-based, then you're probably going to want to do statistical sampling. Um, and even, you know, me, I, I have a background in it and did some work in uh, statistical sampling and error rate prediction when I worked at Texas Instruments. And I still don't trust myself to, mm-hmm. to properly design a sample. I use a statistician. And, you know, the way Medicare does it isn't actually statistically valid. Um, it's good enough for, for Medicare when they're beating up on you, but it's not good yeah. enough for a disclosure. So get a statistician, you know, pull a sample, determine if you need to stratify, you know, once they understand the nature of the error and how it's going to arise. Mm-hmm. And then once you pull your universe, um, then uh, they can properly design a sample, make sure that your samples are statistically independent, you know, um, and uh, and then you do your analysis and then project and you're probably going to have to stratify by payer, at least just so you know how much to refund uh, each payer. Right. So, so you're talking about doing um, retrospective audits, yeah. right? Well, and L- yeah, looking back, your current audit is telling you something that potentially suggests there are prior there, claims that right. are equally in error. So with the ENMs, and if it's outpatient, um, you know, we're going back to 2021, and then depending on if it's another type of ENM uh, where the rules didn't change until when 2022 or 2023, um, you know, that may change your your look back period. Mm-hmm. So then, um, when do they need to? Okay, so they've done like a sampling, they've determined there's a problem. So, at what point do you recommend that they get legal counsel involved? If it's at that yeah. point, immediately because you know at that point you're going to need legal counsel, you know, to properly explain the nature of the overpayment obligation, evaluate the error, you know, make sure that it is a true and objective error that requires disclosure and refund, and it isn't something that you know if Medicare came down with an audit result and said this, you know, we would have appeal rights. Uh, mm-hmm. But you need to be cautious just because you have appeal rights doesn't mean, you know, you have a basis to make a, a an objective appeal for which you have a reasonable chance of winning. Um, so just because you can appeal doesn't mean uh, that that you need you can walk away from your disclosure liability. If it's a hard error on E&Ms or let's say you found something like they build something, 25 modifier wasn't justified or something like mm-hmm. that. And, and there's a, a relatively uh relative likelihood that you're going to see that if we open up more claims 
Um, that's what triggers the need to do an investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once the investigation identifies specific claims that were overpaid, then you have 60 days to disclose, um, depending on the amount. I mean, if you can refund it along with your disclosure, uh, follow your local Medicare contractors, uh, disclosure and refund rules. If it's the blues, you know, do the disclosure at least, and then they'll tell you how to do the refund. Some Medicare contractors, when we're talking about Medicare, you know, want you to send a check with a disclosure. Some do right. not. So uh, read those local rules. But um, the long and the short of it, you definitely have to get the disclosure done within 60 days. But the 60-day clock doesn't start running until you have your audit completed. You know, mm-hmm. you have your spreadsheet and it's boiled down this claim number, this date of service, this patient, you know, this was what was billed. This is what should have been billed. And you calculate the, the you know, the actual overpayment, you know, and recognizing because it's a six year look back, some of those claims are back prior to when you could, you know, submit a corrected claim. Because I forget how far back you can go to submit a corrected claim, but it's not forever. I think it's right. a year. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, uh, I don't anymore. know. It's been, it's been a long time either. since I've been involved in that. So, um, yeah, same. I'm sure there's somebody that on the that's going to listen to this. That's going to mm-hmm. know this off the top of their head. And <laughs> good for you. Uh, right. <laughs> send me an email and tell me um, so I know. But uh, uh, and of course you could look it up. But uh, um, but the long and the short of it is Medicare's position is that if the code was wrong, you got to refund it, mm-hmm. and then. Um, they're not, you can try to do the offset. You know, we got overpaid by this much because it was a four and it should have been a three or something like that. Right. But usually when they're doing the audit, if it's a four and it's, it's overcoded, they'll deny and request a refund for the whole thing. And if it's too late for you to rebuild the corrected claim, too bad. Right. You know, that's the way Medicare's position is. But from a disclosure and refund perspective, since you were only overpaid by a certain amount, I think it would be safe, um, you know, to disclose, uh, you know, the correct code and the payment offset and refund only that. And if they want more, they'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's, you know, those types of decisions I think are best made with counsel as well as designing the scope of your audit, making sure um, that you have a, a statistician to appropriately design the sample. Because if you do it wrong, they won't accept it. I mean, right. So don't think, and I don't recommend that, you know, you just grab rat stats and, you know, pop out some numbers and, you know, try to do a projection and say, this is it. Because even following Medicare's guidance, they're way harsher on when you're doing a disclosure to them than when they're doing an overpayment to mm-hmm. you. So yeah. they can cut corners. We can't. I'm glad you said rat stats. Cause I find it difficult to use myself, you know, just trying to find us, my valid I can't say that word today. Statistical. <laughs> so, I can't say that one. Um, but yeah, I find that complicated. <laughs> I like that better. <laughs> um, but there are people out there that can help. And of course, if you have legal counsel, perhaps that counsel could recommend a yeah. person that can do that. Yeah. So, I mean, it, um, but, but you're safer, you know, demonstrating you've done, you know, because things that rat stats can't tell you is should we stratify, you know, you right. need a statistician to look at, you know, the nature of the data, the nature of the problem and make those decisions as to whether you should stratify or not, because mm-hmm. sometimes, I mean, you don't want to overpay. And if you design your sample wrong, you know, you're, uh, you're going to end up paying more maybe than you should. So uh, it's better to spend a few dollars and get a, a, 
uh, a proper statistical study done, uh, mm-hmm. overpayment estimation, make sure that everything is done right and that you actually have a, can prove that you have a statistically valid result. Because if you can't, they'll make you do it again or they'll make you do 100% audit. Right. And you don't want that. A lot of. No, uh, well, it's just more messing around, more lawyer fees. You know, well, usually when I too. do disclosures, you know, we send them in. And if you do them right, there's never a question that's like, thank you very much. Here's where you send your check. And, <laughs> you know, and that's what right. you want to happen. Yes. Uh, uh, if it has to happen, right? <laughs> yeah. If you have to do a disclosure, you want it to be easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Uh huh. Uh, it's like I always tell doctors with documentation. Documentation, you know, if it's good, it answers all the questions that anybody's going to ask. You know, bad documentation creates questions, and mm-hmm. when those questions get asked, then it costs money to answer them. I agree, because anytime you leave things, gr- the gray area that we love to talk about, well, just like you said earlier, I could audit a record, or you could audit the same one, and we could come up with a different Response. Yeah, especially when we're pulling different inferences from the same piece of information. And, you know, I may be willing to pull an inference. You're not, uh, you yeah. know, maybe my background in a particular area is a little deeper and I'm mm-hmm. going to read something a little different than you are. Yeah. And the problem is you never know what the skill level of the auditor is on the other side of the, the equation. And I like not leaving things to chance. Right. And especially when they're not well skilled in the specialty. Mm-hmm. They'll follow the, the documentation content elements strictly, and if you're missing mm-hmm. something, you lose. And then you're into an expensive appeal process trying to explain why it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> right. That's why it's better to get it, just do it right the first time around and try to it is. And then get your rid of that all come gray. Out clean, and then there's no disclosures and refunds. And, you know, well, but, in a perfect world, it would be that way, but, you know, that's. 10% of the provider community that'll, you know, go out of the <laughs> shoot to get it right. And then there's 10% is it 90% that keep us all employed. Is that a valid percentage or are you just making that up? <laughs> no, I, it's it, in, in my experience based upon, you know, uh, how clients come to me about 10% are being proactive and the other 90% yeah. are, I just got this letter. Yes, you know? I agree. And with they're that. horrified, ready to dive out a window. And most of them have never had an audit or they don't do any internal audits. Um, you yeah. know, they don't have a compliance plan or no. they have one and it's sitting on a shelf a, somewhere. Well, And that's even worse. I like yes. compliance programs, meaning you do things to be compliant without, you know, the formal structure of a written plan, especially for small practices that don't have the resources to hire, you know, a six figure compliance officer that runs around and does nothing right. with compliance. Now, the larger the organization, you need that structure. But oh, for absolutely. The smaller organizations, having a plan that's sitting on a shelf that you're not following um, becomes, you know, more dangerous than having no right. plan at all. Because if an error that caused an overpayment is based upon something that would have been not, or, you know, would have been handled had you followed your own compliance plan. You know, you're you're pretty much putting intent on the table, you know, because you, you got a compliance plan, you didn't follow it, you made this error, it caused an overpayment, which means, you know, that's that's reckless. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not, you didn't know, you knew, you just you knew. didn't do anything and you got an overpayment and it's, you can't say, oh, it's a mistake or, oh, we didn't have time. You know, Absolutely. So the, the, the formal compliance plan, and I know that there's, you know, the people in the compliance community are going to hate me for saying this, but (laughs) don't push written compliance programs on small practices that don't have the resources 
to implement them, mm-hmm. teach them how to be compliant, how to do, you know, uh, knock down their policies, do risk analysis, stuff like that, and, and teach them how to do that. Tell them to, you know, schedule some, you know, quarterly staff meetings or if something changes, you know, circulate something, keep a record mm-hmm. of it, document what you're doing to be compliant, uh, but don't force yourself to do things that you're going to forget to do. Um, you know, and, and, and that way, what your little compliance binder, which everybody should have, this is what we had this staff meeting, we discussed this, and I was on this carrier's website, and I found this new policy, and we circulated it to the doctors, and we did a concurrent audit of claims, and we noticed this, and we got that fixed, and, you know, we looked in, in the past, and, and, and that's, you know, a recent problem caused by this, and we got that fixed, you know, but everything that's in there is demonstrating what I like to call good citizenship, meaning your efforts at trying to make sure and that uh, that you're doing things right. And then that helps me as a lawyer argue, these people are not trying to rob the system. They're trying to do the right thing. If you identify an overpayment, you disclose it and refund it. You know, if something got billed on the wrong patient or the wrong date, you fix it, you know, and you throw that in your evidence of that in your compliance binder, then everything in there is a positive and it helps insulate you from any uh, allegations of of fraud. Um, But uh, when you have a compliance plan and you're not following it, that's yeah that's on the bad side yeah i agree i agree a hundred percent well i want to talk more about this but let's take a quick break and we'll be right back how are you safeguarding against errors that put your organization at risk at aapc services we leverage our deep expertise in over 80 medical specialties to create tailored solutions that drive accuracy profitability, and peace of mind for healthcare organizations of every size. And when it comes to the accuracy you depend on, we leave nothing to chance. Your project will undergo our multi-tier quality review process, ensuring you meet your goals. And we maintain our enterprise-wide 98% accuracy rate. Learn more at aapc.com business. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We're sitting here with Mike Misko picking his brain on all things compliance and legal. And we've covered a few different broad topics already so far. Um, So let's talk a little bit more about um, compliance plans. And the OIG recently updated uh, some of their guidance on on the compliance. And I like what you said earlier about smaller practices. Um, they don't always have the people. They don't have a compliance officer. Um, so hopefully, at minimum, they have a certified coder on staff is usually what I'm looking for. Like, do they have somebody that's certified that's at least helping them with their claims? And then what can they do to make sure that they're staying compliant? Compliant. Yeah, so that, that's a good point. The OIG did publish um, new general guidance. And if you read the new general guidance, it sounds a lot like the old general guidance. I mean, there's no new giant concepts. Um, they have structured their guidance in, you know, into categories uh, a little bit more precisely than they did in the past. And they have promised new um, small physician practice guidance and, and hospital guidance and nursing home guidance. And, you know, so they're going to redo all of those uh, individual, uh, uh, specific guidance areas. So look Mm -hmm. for that, but I don't anticipate, um, that for the small physician practices. And when I say small, I'm talking like 10 docs or less, Right. Um, Okay. you know, maybe one to two locations. Um, Mm -hmm. 
you know, certainly super small is the single dock practice, you know, with, uh, you know, they're maybe they have on-site billing or outside billing, uh, you know, they're admin people and, and some nursing and assistants and stuff like that. But, um, you know, the, and when you look at those practices, even a 10, you know, I work with a 10 doc practice and they have an office manager who does a fairly good job of, uh, digging into compliance issues, but she's not a com- trained compliance officer. Mm-hmm. She's an office manager, you know, she's been in the practice for a gazillion years and has a good functional knowledge of compliance, but, you know, uh, and, and not that, you know, I necessarily think that you have to go to compliance school to learn to be a good compliance officer, but it really, really helps uh, because it provides some structure and exposes you to areas of compliance in healthcare outside of fraud and abuse. Mm-hmm. So there's HIPAA privacy and security that everybody forgot about, you know, after, like two <laughs> yes. years after, you know, right. the regs were COVID. published. And, uh-huh. and, and I know that because every client that I deal with, they're wanting to send me stuff with PHI in it before I'm even retained. Yes. I'm like, right. whoa, 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 stop. You can't do that. That's a breach. Yeah, we you had know, that as well. to be retained. You know, we need to execute a business associate agreement. And mm-hmm. I'm the one that's always drafting the HIPAA business associate agreement, which tells mm-hmm. me they must not have one. Uh, exactly. Those compliance plans are mandatory. Right. The other interesting thing is the HIPAA privacy and security is one of the areas that they've enveloped into um, the OIG's compliance guidance. So hopefully it'll start getting a little more attention. And, uh, you know, the other thing that always amazes me about HIPAA, as long as we've been dealing with HIPAA, you know, is medical practices requesting records from other medical practices. And the one that has the records wants the patient's authorization. Mm. And I'm like, you obviously know nothing about HIPAA. Right. Okay. Right. If, if they signed your, you know, uh, your notice of privacy practices, which they had to have signed in order for you to even submit a treat claim, them. Yes. you're authorized to do TPO disclosures, treatment, payment, healthcare operations, and a physician to physician disclosure is treatment. You don't need anything for that. Mm-hmm. Um, other than verifying that the patient is actually a patient of that right. practice. But um, but once you've validated that, I mean, you can send them everything. You, that you, Those disclosures aren't even subject to the minimum necessary disclosure rule. Hmm. So long story short, um, I don't see small physician practice compliance changing substantially. But what I think small practices should do rather than saddle themselves with a formal plan uh, what they should do is um, develop what I call a compliance program, you know, like a checklist of things that they're going to do periodically um, or as needed, you know, to demonstrate their efforts at compliance. So, you know, in the billing arena, if they if they notice something was paid incorrectly and it was overpaid, um, like, for example, I had a client one time call me and said, um, uh, I got paid for 25 units of an E&M. Oh, do I get to keep Units. the money? And I'm like, no, <laughs> you don't, because you didn't do 25 ENM services, so you got to right. refund 24 of them. You oh know? my! And but you do that, and then you throw that in your compliance binder. You know, right. we noticed this overpayment. We were good citizens. We returned the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you do that even where you wouldn't 
necessarily have to because I think principles of equity apply. So if it was a commercial payer, um, you know, in that, in that arena, if they notice it, they have the right to demand the money back. You don't have a disclosure obligation per se. Uh, although I, interestingly enough, I have seen recently in a contract where they did bury a disclosure obligation in the contract. Really? Um, but yeah, but it, it, it was some weird plan, uh, out in Oregon. Uh, but, other than that, you know, your, your national blues plans, uh, they, they tend to follow the same script. It's not in there. You don't have to do it, but I think it's a good idea to do so. Um, so that if they're barking about fraud and abuse, I can, then I have something to say, no, you know, here's the list of things that the, that the practice has done, you know, to, uh, you know, to demonstrate their attempts at compliance, there's no fraud here. And where that comes up is, you know, if there's a look back limitation, uh, in, in a state law, uh, you know, where they're only allowed to go back so many years or 18 months or Texas is like six months, one of the best states. Um, other states are 18 months or two years. Usually some states are one year, um, like California, for example, Pennsylvania is two years. Long story short, those all have escape clauses if, except for fraud, waste, and abuse. So, you know, it's easy to say, oh, this is fraud or a pattern of error, you know, whatever. And therefore we, the payer wants to jump past that limit. Mm-hmm. Um, but having evidence of your efforts at compliance, not just with them, but in general, uh, helps dispel any notion that there's any fraud, waste, or abuse there. And, um, you know, and may provide your, your counsel uh, a better argument at limiting the scope of any refund in a commercial payer audit. Now, Medicare, that doesn't apply. They can go back, uh, they can reopen for cause. Basically, they go back, uh, take the date, a claim was paid, go to the end of the year plus four. So maximally five years, uh, the voluntary refund and disclosure goes back six years. But long story short, document what you're doing. Periodically go up on the payer website, pull the medical policies to see if they've changed. Document that you did it. You have mm-hmm. a staff meeting or there's an issue that you want to talk about, a new policy or coverage problems and that you, know, you want to go through and review the policy so all the docs know what they need to document document that you did it um you go to a seminar you uh, attend a a a payer you know uh podcast or webinar or something like that document who who was there and and who who did that and if there's any action items on the back end internal audits you want to document those and and i always recommend contemporaneous audits um because they don't necessarily tell you anything about what happened in the past, but it's just checking the big, the easy stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we got the right patient ID, the right data service, the right diagnosis codes, CPT codes, are the modifiers justified, are the units correct, things of that nature. Right. I mean, look at that stuff before the claim goes out. And if you're using a third-party biller and you're responsible to, you know, they're going to bill what you give them. That's definitely a responsibility that you should have. And, and I always try to warn providers, providers usually retain billing services for their expertise because they're certified billers, they're certified coders, mm-hmm. but they need to read the contract. Those folks are not doing value add usually. And if they are, they probably shouldn't uh, unless they are actually going to extract the codes from the documentation. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if you're giving them codes, you need to you need to make sure that they're correct, and other because that's what they're going to bill because that's what their contract says they're going to bill, and they, they right. don't want to own any part of your post payment liability. So that's why uh, third party biller contracts limit their 
responsibility. We're going to bill what you give them. So that puts the onus on the provider to make sure that they code correctly. Now, if you are hiring somebody to extract codes from your claims, then you need to make sure that they are very familiar with your local payer rules so mm-hmm. that they do it correctly because the common error there, and I'm sure you've probably seen this, is they take what I call a universal truth approach where they code consistent with Medicare and maybe the payer involved that works and maybe it doesn't. So right. um, those are some of the out points that, you know, that ne- people need to figure out as part of their compliance program to make sure that the claims that actually get submitted are uh, compliant with that particular payer's rules. Mm-hmm. So, and and that's that's the whole end end game of compliance: doing everything that you can to make sure that you achieve that objective, understanding that there will be mistakes. But if they're mistakes, I want them to be just mistakes and hopefully isolated, so that it doesn't trigger any broad based. Uh, disclosure and refund obligation. Right. And you want to make sure that they've got somebody that can, we were talking about kind of like the billing company and that you want to make sure that they have somebody that can go back and, and educate the provider, you know, for example, like in a recent audit that I did, we had a provider that, um, was seeing patients and he would talk to them about tobacco counseling, but he never documented his time. Well, he didn't know. Uh, all you have to do is document your time. He yeah, did the counseling. Think, yeah. And I think the problem is, is that billing services are loath to get into that because it's not their responsibility. They're going right. to what you give them. And right. that's why I think, you know, using services like ABC, not to put a big plug in for ABC, but, <laughs> um, but you know, to get an external auditor as part of your compliance program to validate that you're, you know, billing things correctly, that you're not mm-hmm. leaving money on the table, and more importantly, that you're not overcharging. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that's where, you know, in your world, the best, you know, scenario for you is that you're finding things that doctors are missing mm-hmm. that if properly documented, they could claim. And it, it's, it, you know, it's like documenting E&Ms on the basis of time. You know, when they're right. doing like a, uh, you know, pre-surgical consult or something, assuming that it can be billed, you know, and it's, Yaki yaki yaka. There's no exam. Yeah, right. And, you know, there's the decisions already been pretty much made. And but, you know, they spend 40 minutes going through with the patient and mm-hmm. the docs never think of time. And that's where, yeah. you know, your kind of audit, you know, can be the springboard to educating providers. OK, you have these options, you know, and, and if you're willing to, you know, um, you know, use an extra brain synapse and recognize this is an encounter <laughs> based on time and therefore I need mm-hmm. to document this way you know, uh, you're not going to be pushing the edge of the envelope under medical decision-making to get the money that you should be getting out of the encounter. And that's what docs usually do. Yeah. They stick with their regular templates. They, you know, it's a four because I spent, you know, whatever with the patient. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but the time, you know, the documentation doesn't really support it. And, uh, and it's too late to go say, well, I spent 40 minutes with the patient, you know, talking about this, that, I mean, sure, you can write an addendum, but, you know, lots of luck getting anybody to believe it when it's two years <laughs> right. after the fact. You know? So, you know, that stuff needs to be done, um, you know, contemporaneous with the encounter and uh, uh, and based upon knowledge. And that's where mm-hmm. uh, your kind of, you know, audits leading to where that training needs to be. And it right. may also identify some overpayments that need to be disclosed and refunded. But, you know, that is part of your compliance program. Exactly. You know, where you're validating that whatever you're billing people are doing for you, that they're doing it right. Or right. if you're and giving them the codes, the modifiers and all that other stuff, that mm-hmm. you're doing it right. 
and they're being proactive and I always like to tell them, you know, we're here to prevent, hopefully, that payer audit or when that payer audit comes, at least you can hand over your records with a smile, you know, like, good luck. Here you go. (laughs) And that's a great point. Prevent the audit. I mean, there's so much that can be uh, that can where you can help out providers with profile management. Mm -hmm. What does your billing profile look like? Because if it's too, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Uh, cookie cutter? Right. You know, where you're billing the same stuff, same to, all the time. That I, mean, mm-hmm. I guarantee you're going to get clipped. Oh, yes, um, absolutely. I mean, that's what computer programs identify is consistency in, in your billing data. So, you know, and, and because patients are different, there's not going to be that much consistency. I mean, you see it in some some specialties, but like oncology or something like that, and you can't avoid it. But yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, most practices, there should be some diversity in your billing profile. And when there's not, that's something that, you know, a compliance audit that you guys would do leading to education can say, hey, you want to reduce your post-payment risk? Here's what you need to do. And, uh, you know, quit stretching your encounters or looking for reasons to get to a certain level all the time. I know you get paid on your RVU's work, but, you know, you know, that's not... Uh, you're just leading yourself into a brick wall. Yeah, I hate that question. That, that like, well, what do I need to document to get a four? And like, it, that's not what it's about. It's about the patient. You know, their their need today is a level four because it is moderate. You know, it's not that you need to document it that way. Then if it's not, it's a level three. You know, <laughs> I wrote a really smart EMR program once that put some hard rails on providers. You know, in terms of letting them, you know, condition creep, and it was in a physical medicine environment. And, you know, it would do all your diagnoses from your exam findings and tell you when you needed imaging and when you didn't. And it was really smart. And we get calls all the time. What do I need to find so it'll let me do this therapy? Like, (laughs) no, no, no. You're missing the point. If you're asking me how you, you know, falsely uh, record an objective finding so that you can justify doing a therapy, therefore committing a Title 18 crime, I'm not going to tell you. Oh, that's good. Well, uh, we're about out of time. We could probably talk for hours. I know you and I couldn't at least. Um, so um, anyway, thank you very much for uh, joining me today and being a guest on The Pulse. We appreciate I it. I hope you'll invite me back. Well, we certainly will. And you can always catch me and Mike always at the AAPC conferences. One of us is always there speaking about some topic or another, right? So, yep. We'll uh, see, look forward to seeing everybody in yep. Vegas. Here we come. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Pulse and we'll see you next time. Podcasts are great. Hands-on expert help is better. Let AAPC services tackle your revenue cycle challenges for more accurate, efficient, and profitable reimbursement. Visit aapc.com business to learn more.